And we're looking at Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 6, chapter 6, verse 20. So let's give our attention to God's Word. And as a little bit of context, he's talking, uh, we're picking up in the middle, and he's talking about essentially Jesus' uh, office of high priest. That's what he's just spoken about. So verse 11 says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then, fallen, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance." Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their, dispute, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all man's glory is like the flower of the field and that the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but God's word stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it more tonight.
Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that we are weak and that yet you are strong. That our words and our actions uh, in and of ourselves, uh, they, they're fleeting and they're feeble. But your word will stand forever. And so, Father, we ask that you would, that you would help us to understand your word. That we would understand and recognize the wonderful privilege that we have to hear from you. That we would experience the power of your word. That you would work in us by your word to change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I want you to imagine that you live in the, in the very heart of Tornado Alley in Oklahoma. This may not be hard to imagine for some of you. And you basically have a foolproof uh, storm shelter underground for those sorts of things. And then one day, you hear the sirens. You hear the tornado sirens sounding. And so in that scenario, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing to hear those sirens? What would you think? Well, I think the answer is that it's both, right? It's on the one hand a bad thing to hear the tornado sirens because that means that there is great danger and that it's bearing down on you. And that's not good. But at the same time, since that is true, it's good news, right? Because it, it, it's a warning, but it's a warning, right? It's, it points you to your hope. In, the, in your storm shelter. It lets you know the trouble's coming and it points you to your hope. And as strange as it might seem or sound, uh, I think that's exactly what this passage is doing. It's in a sense serving as the same kind of thing. A warning, but a warning that's filled with hope and points us to hope. If you've been with us, you know that this semester we're studying through the book of Hebrews And every week we say that our our theme is better than you can imagine. Because the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians that are tempted to to abandon Jesus and go back to being being Hebrews, right? Uh, Jews. And they're essentially wrestling with the question, is Jesus really worth it? What's so great about Jesus? Because as they're facing persecution, they're tempted to go back. And so that all through the, this letter, this sort of sermon, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus is better than you can imagine. And tonight, what I want you to see is that it shows us that Jesus is our better hope. That Jesus is our hope. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at three things tonight. First, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see a warning from this passage. Secondly, we're going to see the reason for hope. And thirdly, we'll see the result of that hope. And look, on the front end, I think I've said this every week, uh, and it, I think it's true every week. Hebrews as a whole is a really dense book. And, and this, passage, this passage is no exception. It, it can be, it's a very difficult passage, potentially confusing, maybe hard to swallow some of this stuff. And, uh, but I think we can make some sense of it. <laughs> So we're going to give it a shot. All right, so first, a warning. 
Uh, the first part of the passage, especially what's, what's there in chapter 5, is obviously the part that's maybe more difficult to understand and, and maybe a little harder to swallow, at least what it seems to be saying. Uh, and it very much is a warning to these, to these Christians. The author is, is just outright saying, look, you are in a very dangerous place right now. You have put your faith in Jesus. He's your hope. And, and now you're, you're thinking about abandoning him, about going back. And he is loudly and clearly saying, look, you have to recognize you're in a very dangerous spot. I want you to sit up and take notice. It's a serious situation because leaving Jesus is a huge deal. And so I want to look at a couple of things about this warning before we... Uh, sort of look at the warning proper to try to clear up a little, uh, probably some potential confusion that you might have. Uh, a couple of things. First, look in six, chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so it, it might sound like what, what he's saying is something like, all right, look, come on, people. Grow up. Right? I thought by now you'd be past the whole Jesus died for my sins stuff, and we'd be on to the, the bigger and better stuff of Christianity. It's time to move on and be past that. I want to tell you the advanced Christianity stuff. Uh, some of you very well might have heard me say, I say this from time to time, that... Um, that there is no 102 class in Christianity. Right? Or what is Baylor? Like 1102? Is that how? Right, 1102. Y'all know the rest of the world does like 101, 102, right? But, but Baylor. Okay. So you probably heard me say that uh, you have the, you know, that Jesus, the fact that he died for your sins, the fact that he uh, died to take away our sins, lived to give us his righteousness, um, by his grace, that that's the 101 of Christianity. And that, in a sense, there is no 102 class, right? That, in other words, that the, the gospel that saves someone is exactly the same thing that grows someone, that sanctifies us. The same thing the non-believer needs, Jesus and his grace, is exactly the same thing that the believer needs, and so it might sound like this passage is saying something very contrary to that, right? But I think it's actually saying exactly that. What, what, uh, what I'm, that there is no 102 class, so to speak. Um, all right, so how do, how do we understand it that way? Um, all right, so the first thing you've got to understand is when he says, uh, oh gosh, where'd it go? Anyway, when he says, do, uh, you need to leave, right? The, um, the elementary things of Christ, that verb for leave doesn't mean abandon and just get entirely away from. Rather, the idea is, is to advance with, right? Uh, it's like he's saying, take that and run with it. He's not saying forget about it, leave it behind in that sense. He's saying, take this, uh, build on this foundation, when he says the elementary doctrines, it's literally the basic principles. We could say the ABCs of Christianity. So here's my illustration. 
Think about what it's like to learn to read and write. What's the first thing you do? Well, you learn your ABCs, right? A, B, C, you learn your letters. And then from then what? Well, from then on, it's still all just A, Bs, and Cs, right? It's still just letters. Now, it's more complicated than that, and yet it's not. Does that make sense? It's still exactly the same thing the whole time. It's taking that. So so what does that mean for us, right? The good news of Jesus, it means to take the good news of Jesus and grow in and with that. The, The very simple and yet profound good news that Jesus loves you and lived and died for you. So... Substituted himself for you. Take that and work it, work it out into, see how it applies to every aspect of your life. Because seeing how, how Jesus has loved us, and that's what's going to grow us and change us. It's what maturity looks like. All right, the second part... Uh, Confusion that I want to clear up is about this, the warning itself about falling away. Because look, this is a really potentially confusing part. And there, it's, it's a debated passage. There are a lot of different interpretations. Right? Is this passage teaching, because it sure can seem like this, can be really scary. Is this passage teaching that somebody can truly be a Christian and then not be? And then fall away? And a lot of people would say yes. But I want to suggest to you that the answer has to be no. For at least a couple of reasons. Uh, but one is this. Look, maybe the, or no doubt, the number one rule of, of interpreting Scripture is this. That we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay, if you don't take anything else from RUF, learn this. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. So what that means is that when we have a harder to understand passage, we want to take passages that are easier and clearer, easier to understand, and understand that one in light of those. And look, there are just an abundance of passages throughout the Bible that are crystal clear about the fact that God will, will necessarily cause His people to persevere. That if someone is really and truly a Christian, then He will see you through to the end. The overwhelming evidence of the Bible, testimony of the Bible, points to that. People that are truly converted will not fall away. Um, you can look at the end of Romans 8. Where Paul lists all kinds of things. Is there anything that could tear me from Christ? And he lists a number of things and he says, absolutely not. Because nothing can. Uh, John 10, 28. Jesus talks about how uh, those that the Father has given him are in his hand and no one can take them out of his hand. And there are plenty of others. Alright, so what is this warning about? What is this falling away? I think very simply, this is someone who has professed to be a Christian... And has taken part in the visible church. So in other words, they have proclaimed, said that they're a Christian. They've been, maybe they've been baptized. They, they are regularly involved in, in the activities of the church. 
And yet, it's someone that's hardened their heart to the truth. And they actually never were truly a Christian. Um, and in fact, there were, probably, there were probably already a number of people, or at least some people, in, the, in this church that he's writing to that they've seen this happen to. And it's really, it's really what Jesus tells us about in, uh, in his parable of the sower and the soils. Right? You familiar with that one? Um, was it Mark chapter 4? Uh, Jesus gives the parable of how God's word going out is like a, a sower that sows seed, and some falls on the rocky ground and is snatched up by the birds and taken away, and some falls in good soil, and it, you know, those are the true Christians, and some is rocky ground. And, it, and he talks about how some of the seed, it grows up for a little while, and it, it looks like a healthy plant. But then either the sun scorches it and it dies because it didn't have root, or the weeds grow up and choke it out. But Jesus himself gives us a category uh, for understanding this. That there is a category of, of people that will profess to be believers, but actually not be. Uh, but that brings up a lot of questions and, and makes us nervous, so we need to say a couple of other things. And one thing I want you to see is that this is not talking about someone that's simply struggling with sin. Because that can be the big fear. Right? Where, where, where you sit and think, is this me? Am I falling away? And look, this is not someone that, that is, is, is struggling with sin. Rather, this is someone that doesn't repent. Look at verse 6. Uh, because it talks about how it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. It's somebody that's consciously rejected the gospel and has hardened their heart. Somebody that doesn't care to repent. And so, look, if you're here tonight and your conscience is stirred up by this, pricked by this, and you're afraid that this might be you because of some sin in your life, and you're, you're sick over that, and, and you're repentant, meaning you turn to God in that sin, with that sin, then you can take heart. Because that's not what he's talking about. But at the same time, this is a real warning. If you find yourself indifferent to sin and and sort of unwilling to repent, not seeing the need for it, or or thinking that that's something you'll get to later, then I I do want you to hear this warning. Basically, he's saying, look, there's a point of no return. And now that we don't know where that is, and that's thus the warning. We're not guaranteed tomorrow's repentance. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, there was a, a minister, this was years and years ago, and I'll just say a minister in our circles uh, that started to drift away from his family and from the faith, really. And he wanted to divorce his wife, uh, not for biblical grounds. And his best minister friends came around him multiple times and they pled with him and they, they, from, from God's word and they said, do not do this. This is a, you are, you are stepping out of the bounds, right? They, they were issuing him the warning. And he said he appreciated their care, but he was going to divorce his wife uh, because he wanted to, and he trusted that Jesus would somehow meet him on the other side. And sadly, he 
continued to drift away. Uh, Another example that I've seen, I did youth ministry for a number of years before I did RUF. And I saw lots of high school kids that grew up in the church and they went off to college and they were uh, seemingly committed, committed Christians. And, and they get to college and they basically look at it and they say, you know what, this is my time and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm sure like I'll pick up the whole like church being a good person thing, being a Christian on the other side. I'll sort of straighten up and, and do that later. And if that happens to be you in whatever regard, I, I hope that you hear this passage screaming at you and saying, look, if you're thinking that way, you're in serious danger. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow's repentance. There's a point of no return. But if you are hearing this, right, then, then recognize, as, as we've seen in earlier passages, that today is the day of repentance. The day of salvation. All right, so that's the warning. Let's look at the reason for hope. As sobering and maybe scary as that warning is, the author, he follows it with some, maybe some of the most comforting and encouraging words in, in, the, in the Bible. Uh, and he, he basically says, don't turn away from Jesus because Jesus is the only place you can actually have hope. You can have hope in Jesus and you can actually trust that there is hope to be found in Jesus. And he explains why you can trust God Uh, Starting there in chapter 6, verse 13. He gives us the reason to have hope in Jesus. And it's it's where he points to Abraham. So he says that God decided to bless Abraham. If you know your Old Testament. God comes to this, he just picks Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make a people out of you and a nation. And and you're going to have more descendants than you can ever imagine. And your people are going to bless and save the world. And I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Essentially, salvation is going to come through you. And he promises him, promises him those things in Genesis 12. And then the quote that we have here in verse 14, it comes from Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is right after, uh, or is right when he's been told to sacrifice Isaac. Who was the very uh, sort of promise uh, from Genesis 12? And he begins to do that, and then God, you know, holds his hand back and provides the sacrifice. Um, but in chapter 22, right, Abraham already knows what's happened, obviously, in Genesis 15. And what happened in Genesis 15? Was something really amazing. Because Abraham actually asked God the exact same question. He essentially asked, or he actually asked God, how can I know that I'll get what you promise? How can I know I can trust you? And God's answer is this, to us, really bizarre scene. What he does is he tells Abraham, he says, look, I want you to take, I want you to take some animals and cut them in half. So Abraham takes these animals and he cuts them in half and he makes an an aisle, much like we have here, right? Of dead animals. And that's weird to us. It's weird to me. 
But to Abraham, it made perfect sense because this was the common, the common way of, uh, of making a covenant with somebody. Right? We sit down and we write out contracts and we sign them. We say, I agree to do these things and you're going to do these things and I promise and we sign it. And that makes sense to us. Well, this is what they did. Uh, so you would cut the animals and both of you, you would uh, discuss your agreement. I promise to do this. You promise to do that. Sounds good. And then you walk between those pieces together. And you're essentially saying, may this, may I be cut in two if I break my half of the agreement. And you both walk through it. But God has Abraham set this scene up. And as soon as it's set up, he puts Abraham into this weird, like, trance sleep. And what Abraham sees is he sees God pass through the pieces by himself. And what God is saying is that I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I've made this promise to you. And if if either end of this bargain, right, you obeying me and being my people and me promising these things, if either end of this uh, bargain or this contract is broken, I will bear the brunt of it. If either side breaks, I'll be ripped in half. It's amazing. And what's God showing Abraham? What he's showing him is that here's how you can know this is really going to happen because I'm going to do it all. This promise, your salvation, the salvation of the world, it's going to be 100% on me. And if anything about it is off, I'm putting myself on the hook. And right, we know something that Abraham didn't. And it's what verse 19 and 20 is talking all about. It's about Jesus. We know about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's what Hebrews is telling us. That God says that he's going to be responsible for both sides of the covenant. And if you break your half, which we all do, then I will be ripped in half. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. The offended party is also the one that took the place of the offender. And he comes, God comes in the flesh and is ripped apart. Because we broke the covenant. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's how Abraham knew. That's how we know. That's how you know that you can trust this. Because it's not about you. It's not about your covenant keeping and how good or bad you are. It's about what Jesus has done for you. That's how you can know it's real. I've told you before about my friend uh, taking his daughter. They were at the, at the fair and uh, there was some you know, great slide that they wanted to do. And she wanted to do it, but she was terrified. And he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to you. You're going to be fine. And so she agrees to do it uh, you know, with her dad. And they go down because he's holding on to her. He says, hang on to me. And he wraps his arms around her and they go down the slide and they hit the bottom. And of course, what does she say? She says, I did it, right? But why did she do it? It's not because, was it because how tightly, right, the little five-year-old held on to her daddy? No. It's all his work. He did it all. It was his strength. And so she could trust it. That's what this is telling us. That's the reason that we can have hope is because it's not about you and me. 
It's not about how good or bad we've done this week. It's about what Jesus has done. So thirdly and finally, I want us to look at the result of this hope. Our hope is that Jesus has gone into the holy of holies for us. That's what those last few verses are talking about. And I want you to see that the result of all that is that it actually gives us some real stability in this crazy world. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's always nice when the Bible gives you the illustration and I don't have to come up with one. Right? What does an anchor... He gives you the illustration of, that, of, a, of a ship and its anchor. What does the anchor do? Right? It connects the, the boat, the ship, right? that um, floats around on the sea by itself, and it connects it to the earth, to the seabed. Right? So that without the anchor, what happens? It can be blown anywhere and everywhere. But if it's anchored, what happens? It might, be, it might move a little bit, but it's not going anywhere. It's staying put. It's going to be, it's connected, right? And look, doesn't that sound good? Doesn't it sound good to, have, to think about having an anchor for your life? To have something that would, that would connect you and make you stable. Because look, the, like, the world is crazy. Our lives are crazy. And what this, what this is showing us is that Jesus, Jesus is what connects us and keeps us connected to God, no matter what it feels like. So when it, if, your hope, if, if your hope is in Jesus, that even though it feels like you're getting tossed around by your, um, by your schoolwork, or the waves are crashing over you and you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to capsize in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the ocean of, you know, whatever suffering you're facing, the, the dysfunction of your own family, or because you've been broken up with, or fill in the blank, right? This is, this is telling us that, that you can have something that, that connects your soul to something solid, to the most solid thing in the universe, God himself. And so, yeah, life will come and, and move us around a little bit. But ultimately we know, ultimately, ultimately we know I'm not going anywhere. God has got me and nothing can take me from him. My soul's tied to him. And that's the good news. I don't know about you, but that's good news. No matter, how, no matter how bad work goes, or family goes, or school goes, or your health goes, or your checkbook goes, to know that because of Jesus and what He has done, He's got me, and I'm not going anywhere. That's good news. And that's what's offered to me and you, and I, I hope you take it, maybe tonight, even for the first time. Let me pray for us. Father, what an amazing thing that, that you give us an anchor. That you keep us and you do not let us go. Father, would we hear your warning if we need to hear it? 
And would we even more so hear your encouragement and your comfort? That if we turn to you, even, especially in the midst of our, our yuck, our sin, that you do not let go. That you love us and you save us in Christ. Father, help us to hear that. Make that true of everyone in here. We ask it in your name. Amen.